Uh, well, my name is Justin Jones. I'm an assistant pastor here at Grace Community Church. Once again, we are glad uh, that you are with us today. We are resuming today a sermon series that we uh, began a couple of weeks uh, back uh, entitled Life After Death, uh, the ministry of the resurrected Jesus. And so we're looking at the 40 days in between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, uh, because during those 40 days, uh, he ministered to all sorts of people. Um, and the ministry that Jesus did during those 40 days, um, the reason we're looking at this is because the ministry that, that he did then is the same ministry that he does even now, even this morning, by the work of his Spirit. Today we're going to look uh, at Jesus' ministry to an individual who I think that on some level we can all relate to. Um, throughout the Gospels, there, there was one disciple who always wanted to make his presence felt, um, He's the guy who, you know, if a challenge was presented, he's the first one to say, sign me up, I got this, let's go. Take the hell. The disciple I'm referring to, of course, is, is Peter. The one who, after putting himself out there, that he would die for Jesus when presented with self-preservation versus his devotion to his Savior, he chose himself. And he did it three times. And though All the sheep scattered when the shepherd was struck. Peter's downfall was particularly significant because of just how boisterous he was about his commitment to Jesus. There's a good southern expression. I appreciate a good southern idiom. Um, One in particular I'm fond of is the idea of a come-to-Jesus meeting. You know what I mean? Having a come-to-Jesus meeting, some tension, it's been building for a little time and, you know, over a particular matter, and, and it's finally time to sit down and have a come-to-Jesus meeting. What we're going to see here is Peter having a come-to-Jesus meeting with Jesus. Um, and so I want us to read about this interaction. This is from John chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 17. You can find this on page 12 of your bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out, got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. The disciple, whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish that you have caught.' 
And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were many, or so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came and took the bread, gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray for us as we begin to reflect on this text. Father, we give you thanks for Peter. Um, For a man, Lord, who wanted to serve you badly and yet lacked the resources within himself to do so. And, Father, we can relate. And we need you, Lord, uh, to give us resources that we don't have within ourselves. Uh, We need your grace. Uh, We need you to work within our hearts. And, Father, I pray that that you would do that now uh, as we spend time in your word, that you would teach us things that, um, Lord, we need to hear again. Maybe we've heard them all our lives, but we need to hear them again. Teach us new things that we may have never thought about before, but ultimately point us to Jesus so we may draw strength from him and follow him. pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Does the name Bill Buckner mean anything to any of you? What about, what about Steve Bartman? We know that name? A couple years back, ESPN put together a documentary entitled Catching Hell that presented two separate incidents involving these two men. Back in 1986, the Boston Red Sox were on the verge of, of winning the World Series when the team imploded in the bottom of, of the ninth of Game 6, culminating in a slow ground ball that went through the legs of first baseman Bill Buckner, someone who had played in the majors for, for 20 years. He was an all-star. He won a batting title. And the Red Sox lost that game and ultimately lost the World Series, which would have been their first World Series since 1918. It was a big deal. Steve Bartman wasn't even a baseball player. He was, he was just a fan, a lifelong Cubs fan who attended Game 6 of the 2003 National League Championship, hoping that the Cubs would win this game and go to their first World Series since 1945. They hadn't won it, and I say this as a diehard Cardinals fan with a certain sense of appreciation for this. Um, 
They hadn't won it since 1908. But when a foul ball was hit in his direction, he went for it as anybody would in that situation. And in doing so, deflects the ball from being caught. And after a series of bad plays, the Cubs implode. The opposing team scores eight runs. They lose the game. They lose the next game as well. And so the documentary goes into the life of these two men, Bill Buckner and Steve Bartman, after their failure. Men who were made to be the scapegoat for these two teams. Men whose names are now synonymous with curses. Curses that have been broken with the Red Sox and the Cubs. They finally won. But, but their names are still like dirty words. And their lives were made into absolute living hells by the cities that they were from and the national media. Men who would come to be defined by their mistake, by their failure. Can you relate? Can you relate? I mean, theirs was a very public failure. People know them. Um, but can you relate among your circles? Can you rema- or even relate as you perceive yourself, thinking about your own failure? Peter certainly could. And so what I want us to do today is to look at Jesus' ministry to Peter in a sermon that I've entitled, Good News for the Ashamed. And I want us to point out at least two aspects of Jesus' ministry to Peter. These are going to serve as our, our two points for the day. First, we see that Jesus is approachable. And second, we're going to say that Jesus is confrontational. Jesus is approachable, and that Jesus is confrontational. We're going to look at them in those in that order. So first, Jesus is approachable. Upon having the realization that the guy across the lake who is giving this fishing advice is the resurrected Jesus, verse 7 tells us that Peter puts on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. I don't exactly know, and I don't care um, what that means, but bottom line was he threw himself into the sea to go see Jesus. Does any of you, I mean, does that strike you as a strange response? Peter has, has just experienced this enormous failure that directly involves Jesus. A failure so big that we're continuing to talk about it today, right now. And yet, here we find this man who, who Scripture tells us wept bitterly in the immediate aftermath of over what he had done. With all that has taken place, he is excited to see Jesus. So excited, in fact, that he can't even wait for this boat to get to shore. He's going to jump in, and he is going to swim to him. Now, to be clear, this is not the first time that Peter has interacted with Jesus since the resurrection. The text tells us that it's the third. But but given the conversation that we see later in the passage, it's obvious that that Peter and Jesus haven't had the come-to-Jesus meeting yet. But Peter, when given the opportunity to come face to face with the one that he denied, to be in the presence of the one who undoubtedly would remind him of that failure, he's excited. I can't think of, of, um, I can't speak for you. I think about myself. Of all the emotions that I might feel in this moment, I would say excitement would be like, the last one on the list. 
Where is this awkward interaction? Where's the tension? Where's the self-loathing? Where's the guilt? Where's the shame? What's interesting, though, is as we look at this passage, it's actually one of those kind of deja vu passages. It's very similar to a passage that we've already seen in Scripture. Way back when, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in in Luke chapter 5, we find Peter and his friends, middle of the night, they're fishing, having a tough go of it. And just like what we read, then who shows up? But, But Jesus. In the same way, Jesus starts offering helpful fishing advice. And just like John 21, they catch an incredible amount of fish. It's complete deja vu. But as you read the passages, for all the similarities, there's one profound difference. In Luke chapter 5, what what had happened three years prior, Peter's response is vastly different. The text tells us that that Peter fell down at Jesus' on his knees, and said the following, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When confronted with Jesus and the miraculous thing that Jesus does, Peter's not impressed. He's afraid. Depart from me. Get away from me. It's too much. You're too much. In light of who I am as a sinful human being, I cannot handle being in the presence of someone this Extraordinary. We can even hear echoes from, from the passage we read earlier in our service, the Isaiah 6 passage. Depart from me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I live among a people of unclean lips. What Peter and, and Isaiah have experienced is the overwhelming sense of the holiness of God, which makes them acutely aware of their sinfulness. So much so that they are brought to their knees. But here's what strikes me as really profound about this. Three years before, before Jesus had, or I'm sorry, Peter has this giant failure in denying Jesus. Peter sees the holiness of Jesus, and he's scared to death of it. He tells Jesus, get away from me. After this giant failure, when encountering the exact same miraculous events that highlights Jesus' holiness... Peter can't get to him fast enough. What happened? Has Peter lost his mind? Has he forgotten what he said back in Luke chapter 5? That he is a sinful man? Has he forgotten like, what he just did? Has he forgotten the holiness of Jesus that, that, that brought him to his knees before? I suspect that many of you are familiar with the name Brene Brown. Raise your hand if you're familiar with Brene Brown. Most of the ladies. Um, No surprise there. She's an academic. She spent a year studying and researching the topic of shame. And back in 2010, she gave a a TED Talk uh, entitled The Power of Vulnerability uh, that to date has been watched over 30 million times. I'm responsible for at least five of those watches. Um, So... She's become a pretty big deal, uh, a lot of books, interviews, whatnot. But her basic argument is that we as human beings have an innate longing for connection with other people. But we also have this feeling that, that we're not worthy of a connection with other people. That's what shame is all about. That's what shame is. 
And she would make this distinction between guilt and shame. Guilt having to do with with regret over things we do, our behavior, something we said, versus shame, which is, which is not, I did something bad, but I am bad, okay? It gets into who you are. And her argument is, out of that shame, we live our lives. We live our lives reacting to and functioning out of that shame. And one of the ways that, that we attempt to numb those feelings of shame, is to perfect ourselves. To perfect ourselves, to perfect the world around us. My house looks like this, my car looks like this, my clothes look like this, I look like this, and I'm covering my shame. I'm hiding my shame. So so much of our lives are spent creating this facade that we have our act together. And our point is that it's killing us, perfecting ourselves to death as one book puts it. It's making us into people who are, who are neurotic and who are depressed and who are addicted and who are unhealthy and who are lonely. You name it. Not, not out loud. But, but name it for yourself. What? what how much of the things that, that, that you do and I do on a daily basis things that are making our lives miserable and unmanageable are driven by a sense of shame and our need to cover up that shame. And so what Brown argues is that we need to combat shame. We need to push back against shame. We need to get rid of shame. And the way that we do that is by embracing vulnerability, living lives of, of authenticity, live with the recognition that, that I am not perfect and that is okay. I don't have to be perfect. The pressure to do so is killing us. Now, as I listen to Brown, there's like so much of it that I'm going, yeah, that, yes, 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 a thousand times yes, yes. And one of our values here at GCC, we talk about this a lot, is that we want this to be a place where, where we, I mean, it's not just rhetoric, that, that, that we can be authentic. We want a culture that is, is safe to be real and vulnerable and transparent and bring your stuff. Bring all your mess. This is a safe place. That's what we want to be. But as I interact with Brown, I'm left with a question. Where does this shame ultimately come from? Like, what's, what's the origin of it? Why, why do we feel this sense of inadequacy universally? Because it's not enough to simply say, you know, we need to get rid of shame if we don't have a deeper sense of why we have it in the first place. And what the Christian tradition offers is this. What you do, your behavior, your actions, my actions, my behavior, always comes out of who you are. Let me repeat that. What you do comes out of who you are. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. And, and this may sound harsh, so Please stick with me. The reason that Peter, when he encountered Jesus way back in Luke chapter 5, fell to his knees and confessed his sinfulness is because God is holy, holy, holy. And he was sinful. The same is true for us. Our feelings of shame have spiritual implications. Humanity 
collectively has sought out an identity apart from the one we were made by and for, and in doing so, we have fallen from the place of integrity from which we were made, the place where God looked at us and referred to us as very good. Now, to be clear, we still retain the image of God, okay? We're not as bad as we could possibly be, but we're not what we were created to be. And we live in a world that is not the way it was created to be. And out of that, we experience hurt from other people, and we hurt each other, hurt other people as well. We live with this desire to to cover that brokenness, our sin, our shame, because, because it's real. And it runs much, much deeper than just our feelings or just our behavior. But that's not where Christianity leaves us. And a Christianity that leaves you there isn't Christianity. Because while God is holy, 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 and while he does hate sin and rebellion, he also loves broken people. He loves sinners. And out of Out of his love for sinners, he sent his son to take shame upon himself so that we wouldn't have to live with that shame anymore. The hope that we have as Christians is not that our shame isn't real. It is real. The hope that we have is though it's real, our Savior is real as well. To borrow a line, it's it's been used in this place countless times, but the gospel tells us that we are far more broken and sinful than we could ever imagine. But in Christ, we are far more loved than we ever dreamed possible. Here's the thing. I don't know the extent to which Peter could articulate all the ins and outs of this in John chapter 21. You know, fully formed doctrine of justification by faith. But I do know this. He wouldn't be swimming to Jesus unless he felt like he could. And he certainly wouldn't be excited to Jesus, to, to, to see Jesus, unless he knew that he was going to be accepted by Jesus in spite of his failure. There's a sermon illustration I've heard. I've heard it countless times. I've used it, Okay. Um, it's from C.S. Lewis, you know, the lion, witch in the wardrobe. At one point, there's a discussion about Aslan, the, 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 the lion, who, he's the Christ figure in the series, and the question's asked, is he safe? Is he safe? The response to the question, no, he's not safe, but he's good, he's the king. It's a powerful illustration, and I know better than to take on C.S. Lewis. Um, I feel awkward enough offering thoughts on Brene Brown. Um, But is God safe? I get why some people might feel uncomfortable with that word, okay? I mean, God's not our therapist. He's not our buddy. He's the God of the universe. He's the Lord of hosts. The mountains bow down. The seas roar before him. Amen. Amen to all of that. But here's the thing. If you're in Christ, then the God of the universe is also your daddy. And his son Jesus, our elder brother, is our high priest. And he tells us that we can approach his throne of grace with confidence. No matter what we've done. No matter how much shame we feel. No matter how big or public our failures are. 
Why? Because he's taken that shame upon himself. And he loves us, and he accepts us, and he forgives us. I suspect that most of us, when we feel this, this sense of shame, our, our tendency is to run, is to run away, okay? To hide, to hide from the world, to hide from God. Our shame would lead us to conclude that, 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 that being with God would be the last place we'd want to be. But if Christ took your shame upon himself, we don't have to live with that as the framework out of which we operate. Here's the thing. There's a big difference, a huge difference between this. I am a sinner, but I'm forgiven. Versus, I am forgiven, but I'm a sinner. The difference lies on where you're placing the emphasis. And if you are, as we prayed this in our confession, if you are a new creation, adopted into his family, righteous before the throne, that is the primary basis out of which you and I are called to operate. That's not to minimize our sin at all, but that's not what we lead with, right? Putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, I picked that up somewhere along the way, I can't, I'm not quoting anybody in particular, that just, you know, that's not the framework out of which we operate, we can approach God and we can approach all of life with the framework that, that, that while our shame may be real, it's not what defines us. Our imperfections do not define us. The gospel is what defines us. And the reason we want this congregation to be a place where you can be real and vulnerable and transparent is not simply because it's too exhausting to, 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 to hide. Okay? Nobody's perfect, you know, so, so just quit trying. And it's driving everybody crazy. It's driving us crazy. Drop the charade. Amen, amen to all that. But there's no gospel in that. The gospel is that God is holy, my shame is real, and he has taken it as far as the east is from the west. It's gone and we are free. And by being reconciled to God, we can come to him with our failures and know that he loves us. We can even enjoy breakfast with him. It's us to our second point for the day. Not only is Jesus approachable, but he's also confrontational as well. Now, I hear the word confrontational, and, and my first impulse is to hear someone who's, who's belligerent, uh, someone who's overly aggressive, someone who enjoys getting up in somebody's face and, and, and you know, spewing judgment, all that kind of stuff. That's not what we see here from Jesus. But Jesus is also not content to just allow things that need to be said to remain unsaid. Jesus is going to, to confront Peter. But I want you to notice what Jesus does not do in this conversation. At no point do we see Jesus going, you know what, you really blew it back there. Like, wow. What in the world? What, what, what were you thinking? Jesus' purpose here is not to shame him. Jesus has no interest in beating up a person who's already beaten up. His purposes are redemptive. He's going to move Peter forward. Back in Luke chapter 5, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this other story that, that kind of parallels what we read today, after Peter tells Jesus, you know, get away from me, Jesus responds, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men. Instead of catching fish, you're going to be catching people. You're going to be bringing people to me. Here's your calling, Peter. And then the text tells us, these men left everything 
to follow Jesus. Fast forward three years. We see Peter back on the boat. Many speculate that, that what we're, what, what's being communicated here is that this isn't just like a day on the lake. You know, nice way to spend a Saturday. Well, Sabbath and all, I wouldn't have done Saturday. Anyway, you, you, you. Um, what we're seeing here is Peter resigned to go back to fishing. Because in light of his failure, Peter no longer feels capable, worthy of being a fisher of people anymore. Being evangelist is no longer something that he's qualified to do. But by the end of our text, in a verse, I didn't include the verse, and it's my fault, but um, in verse 19, we see Jesus telling Peter, follow me. It echoes exactly what happened before. They left everything and they followed him. Jesus is saying, follow me. But how Jesus is going to move Peter forward matters. It's not just enough to say, you know what, follow me. The manner in which Jesus moves Peter forward is extremely important. Because in moving Peter forward, we don't see Jesus telling Peter, you know what, you got to promise me. Never, ever, 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 ever again, right? Okay? I mean, get your act together. I'm counting on you. This is, I mean, we've got a global project here, okay? All right? I don't need all this wishy-washy nonsense. Jesus doesn't talk about behavior. Because remember, back to what we said before, what we do comes out of who we are. And so Jesus drills down deeper. I asked this question to our inquirers class the other night. What, what motivates you? What, what emotion or, or feeling will cause you to act in a way that otherwise you wouldn't act? I mean, we've already talked about shame, all right? I mean, the, the desire to cover up the inadequacy that we feel, convince the world, convince ourselves, convince God that, 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 that we're okay. We're, we, are, we are worthy. That's, you know, what you saw is not really indicative of what, who I really am. Certainly Peter, you know, always trying to prove himself would have functioned out of that. But for a great number of us, guilt. Guilt causes us to act, right? We have done wrong. We see the pain that it's caused. And, and so we're going to go make it right. Go fix it. Fix our mistakes. For a number of us, the, you know, fear. Fear is what motivates us. The fear of what happens if I don't intervene in this situation. The fear of judgment, okay? Whether it's God's judgment or karma judging or Twitter judging, whatever, fear drives us into action. Jesus asked the question, do you love me? And in doing so, Jesus gets to what is going to be the motivation for Peter's future. Peter's future, feed my lambs, tend to my sheep, feed my sheep. It also speaks to the motivation that all of us have in the Christian life. In our following of Jesus, the motivation has got to be what Jesus says here, our love, our love for Jesus. Because here's the thing, while guilt, while shame, while fear might motivate, it cannot create lasting change within our hearts. But the gospel can. 
so that we wouldn't just serve God out of, out of duty or obligation or, or, or requirement, but with joy and purpose and peace. Here's the thing. God's expectations, the law of God, apart from knowing Jesus and loving Jesus, will not inspire us. It will make us into miserable, self-righteous, angry people. It will not motivate us out of love. I mean, even as you're talking about sort of Psalm 119, okay, this love of the law of the Lord, amen, but that love of the law of the Lord has to come out from a love of God. And if it's not driven by a love of God, then it's just mere moralism. And that's the difference between Christianity and mere moralism, a love for Jesus. And the reason we love him is because he first loved us. And his love has captivated our hearts. His love is always primary. It's always him. He's the one initiating that love. And then we respond. But Jesus doesn't just ask Peter, do you love me the one time? With this, I'm going to close. Three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What we're seeing here is Jesus giving uh, giving Peter the opportunity to offer a counter-statement to the three times that he had denied him before. Peter's going to say it out loud. He's going to confess what he ultimately believes to be true. In just a moment, we're going to confess our faith as we approach the table. And, And the reason we do this, the reason that Christians throughout history have done this, it's not just so we can, like, you know, recite some propositional statements. Why would we do that? I don't know. Just, well, we acknowledge those things to be true. The reason we're doing this is because we are making, we are confessing, we are saying out loud, this is what I believe. And yes, I live a life that sometimes doesn't even look like I believe that at all. But this is what I actually believe. And I'm drawn back to this is what I actually believe. This is what is true. So we can be reminded, no, this, this is what is true. And then go back and go, I'm failing to do that, yes. So I go back to Jesus again and know that Jesus loves sinners. He loves failures. And Jesus is going to move Peter forward. He's going to move him forward, and he's not... Here's the beautiful thing about the situation with Peter. He's not disqualified from his failure, in light of his failure. He's actually ready now. He's ready now to go and tell broken people about the love and grace of God because he himself knows, as a failure, he has experienced the love and the grace of God. And despite our guilt, and despite our shame, and despite our failures, if you know Christ, that's you too. That's me too. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so tempted to cloak to hide, to explain away, to pretend, 
that our sin is not real or it's not as bad as other people or here's the reason why it's okay. And in doing so, Father, functionally, we deny the fact that that you have taken our shame upon yourself and that you are good. So help us, Father, to be honest. To be honest about the fact that, that yes, we are broken, but, but we are loved. Help us to operate out of that. Father, as we approach your table now, would you remind us of these truths, uh, not simply intellectually, Lord, um, but in visible, tangible ways. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.